there, I'm Cheryl. Hi, I'm Jed. And hi, I'm Jerry. Welcome to episode 2 of MMITBH Death and Dying. As the name suggests, today we'll talk about death and dying. Death and dying is an uncomfortable issue for most of us. We don't often talk about it. But it is important to address this issue before everything is too late. So Jerry, would you like to share some of your experience about this? Yeah, Cheryl, I'd be happy to. Well, I'm a medical student, and as a medical student, my studies usually emphasize on saving lives and bringing lives into the world. That's why we study things like obstetrics, or uh, medicine, or surgery. However, I recently did an elective in oncology and palliative care at a local hospital, and it was there that I realized that the end-of-life care is important, and almost as important as keeping people alive or saving lives because we want to make sure that fellow human beings spend their last weeks, months or years with dignity and respect. But I've realised that awareness, especially here in Malaysia, about palliative care and taking care of people who are nearing the end of their lives is quite low. And sometimes, instead of being frank with uh, people with terminal illnesses, I've seen doctors and carers collude to hide diagnosis or to hide prognosis from certain patients. Since you have mentioned this, let's invite Dr. Lam Chi Long to talk about collusion. Hi Dr. Lam, thank you for joining us today. Before we start, could you tell us more about yourself? before we go into the topic of collusion between carers and doctors. I'm sure I'm, I'm a senior lecturer and consultant in palliative medicine at the University of Malaya, um, and I've been there for the last nine years. Um, I've been fortunate enough to graduate from Nottingham University in the UK and have been working in palliative medicine for the last 18 years. I'm married to a geriatrician, and so dealing with death and dying is not entirely unfamiliar within the family. And our two children probably hear uh, a, a lot about uh, life and death in day-to-day -day conversations. Um, in saying that, I, I would say that death and dying is a field where we have to be quite open-minded and we always learn new things um, and have to be really open in, our day in facing day-to-day -day challenges because everyone is different and everyone needs to be treated differently. Um, it's a pleasure and delight to be able to join this podcast today. Great. Thanks so much, Dr. Lam. And uh, that seems like a very comprehensive introduction to the topic. So let's jump right into it. Could you please tell us what is collusion and how often it happens in Malaysia? Well, if you were to look at a strict definition of collusion, it's really a secret pact or an agreement between people um, with the intent or desire to deceive another person. Now that, that, that's the strict definition, um, and it sounds terrible uh, that there's deception within it, but I would say by and large, within the area of medicine, it's, it's largely motivated by good intentions. Um, I think there are some areas of collusion which are a little bit more complex, but for purposes of today, what I'm really going to talk about, the type of collusion I'm going to talk about, uh, especially in relation to death and dying, is um, situations where collusion occurs between a doctor and a family member, uh, with uh, where they, they set out to 
perhaps tell a, a small white lie or, a, or deceive a, a patient themselves actually um, in, in, in day-to-day practice. So an example there I would say is when you have someone who has a serious diagnosis, for example cancer, and the family member comes to hear about the fact that they have cancer and they tell you as a doctor, um, doctor, please don't inform my loved one about the cancer um, because they will just give up and they will get demoralized and they will get depressed and they may give up and die faster as a result of it. Um, So I would say one of it, uh, an aspect of collusion may relate to breaking bad news of that nature, telling someone of their diagnosis. But beyond that, you can also have collusion where um, you decide to collude uh, to withhold uh, in further information about prognosis or further information about treatment and how well it's working. So for example, if someone is undergoing treatment for their cancer and treatment is not going very well um, and their disease is progressing, uh, a decision may be made, oh, don't tell them it's getting worse um, because it'll just, uh, again, disappoint them and, and going through it all would not have been worth it at all. Or else you could have examples where don't tell someone the prognosis so you maintain a facade where oh everything's going so well you're feeling better today aren't you um, you're looking well when in reality the patient themselves may not be feeling that way so those are just examples of collusion um, if you actually ask how often collusion occurs I, I think that's quite a hard question to answer and in Malaysia we don't really have any true solid data to tell us that So in terms of the data in Malaysia, if I I surveyed about 180 medical students in the University of Malaya a few years ago, and when I asked them if they had a serious diagnosis, would they like to know of that serious diagnosis? And about 97% wished to know that they had um, a serious illness like cancer. If I posed the same question to them like it was their parent who had their serious illness, about 81% of them wanted their parent to know the diagnosis. And likewise, if I pose the question that if their grandparents had a serious illness or their children had a serious illness, not that any of them had children at that stage, that figure dropped to under 40%. So depending on the different age groups you're dealing with, um, even our medical students at the beginnings of their careers were already having views that they, they may potentially withhold some information from others, their own parents, their grandparents, or their children if there was a serious diagnosis. So... Um, we apply one standard for ourselves where we get to know the diagnosis but others don't get to know which doesn't really feel feel very fair or just at all to other people Uh, but aside from that we don't have much more data in malaysia there's some studies in singapore there's some studies in india um, where the incidence of collusion is thought to be somewhere around 30 to 50 percent and this is largely by asking people who are using a palliative care service or attending a cancer center, whether they know their diagnosis or not. And about half of them didn't know what was wrong with them. Again, whether they were just pretending that they weren't sure and just wanted the doctor to verify it again, or whether they genuinely weren't told, that isn't very clear at all. Doctor, can you explain carers or doctors? Did they act this way due to belief or for the goods of their patient? Can you tell us more? I think people act this way or agree to collude for a variety of reasons. So for example, if a a family member tells you as a doctor or don't tell my my relative that they have a serious illness, oftentimes, I'm sorry to say, uh, it's much easier for us to say, okay, 
and agree to it than to start exploring that in more detail. Um, it's a path of least resistance and takes a lot less time. If you start exploring the reasons why they want to collude and listen and understand the emotional reasons behind it and the background, it, it, it's a lot more time consuming and it's, it's, it's harder. On one hand also it depends on exposure and how much experience people have as well. So if you're a if you're a junior doctor or you're a medical student and maybe you see a senior colleague agree to collude with a relative, then you may think, oh, it's reasonable to act in that way. Many of these things are affected by local culture and belief as well. So who, who really owns the right to this information? And I would say, by and large, as doctors, we are usually told first and foremost that our duty of care is to the patient. So if there's something, there's some information about the patient, is it not the patient who has the right to know what is wrong with them? I see. So it does seem that um, when it comes to collusion, it really is a matter of life and death issues because you're talking about a diagnosis of a terminal illness and prognosis. Um, so doctor, what about the consequences, both positive and negative, towards the patient if the doctor or the carer chooses to collude and hide this information from them? So if the doctor chooses to collude, by and large, the patient potentially remains blissfully unaware of what is wrong with them. Um, it may become a little bit more challenging because if later they have to go to a cancer centre for treatment, for example, I'm sure thoughts will pass their mind, why am I coming to a cancer centre and why am I getting these sorts of treatments um, that they may be potentially exposed to. I guess on one hand, family members feel a little bit happier and the reason why they they wish to collude as well is because, I mean, it's, it's motivation, motivated by an act of love and care. They don't want to see their loved one hurt. They don't want to see their loved one upset or depressed. There are some views as well, certainly within the community, that if you tell someone that they have a serious illness, that they will give up and they will die faster as a result of that. We don't really have any good medical literature or evidence to prove that to be the case. But, but there is concern because there are obviously stories and um, anecdotes that are reported where someone gets told of their diagnosis, they pretty much just turn to face the wall and then they die faster. That, that's the belief behind it. But I think the consequences to it are manifold. On, on one hand, if you were the patient and everyone knew what was wrong with you uh, except you yourself and everyone told you everything is okay but you yourself know that things are not quite okay because you're not quite feeling as well as you normally do then uh, thoughts may cross your mind uh, how come everyone is telling me that i'm okay and things are fine when i'm really not feeling that way it doesn't really give much opportunity for patients as well to work through issues and prepare for their eventual demise. So for example, if they need to prepare a will, if they need to have certain conversations before they, they pass away, uh, if you don't really give them that opportunity, then they don't have that room to, for example, uh, forgive people or ask for forgiveness or say thank you to people and tell people you love them and tell people goodbye before you leave. So you, you lose a lot of opportunities by not telling the patient those sorts of things. 
for the family members, I mean, the consequences are they will then subsequently have to kind of live a, a, a bit of a false life and live with a bit of a facade, a facade in a way. They have to pretend everything is okay. They have to be careful with everything that they want to say to the patient uh, so as not to let the cat out of the bag. I think aside from that also, there isn't really that opportunity to share any level of openness uh, from the point of view of communication, from the point of view of emotions, um, and, and from the point of view of trying to support one another through the hardship that they have dealing with a serious illness as well. So that in itself places burdens on family members and sometimes they may not be able to sleep or rest and they have to be very, very careful with everything that they do on a day-to-day basis. So, and, and you can't really control what other people know and mm-hmm. what other people say as well. I think for doctors also, it's, it's a little bit about trust and professional values in that if our duty of care is to the patient, if a patient subsequently comes to know about their illness and you as a doctor have been lying to them or telling them a half-truth all along, can they actually trust you as a doctor to provide their care? Because a lot of the doctor-patient relationship is built on rapport and is built on a basis of trust. So if as a patient or even a member of a public views that doctors are not trustworthy because I'm going to see a doctor and they're not telling me the truth about what is wrong with me, um, how can I trust the body of doctors uh, professionally uh, with certain things that I tell them? Are they going to be telling me the truth or not? Uh, I I, I think also from the point of view of the the examples, as I said earlier, that we set to our junior doctors, we need to teach people professional values and we need to function and work to certain standards. And the question then is, um, is it acceptable for doctors to be acting in this way and working in this fashion? When do doctors actually withhold information from patients and carers? And when do they not decide not to withhold? Yeah, I, I think by and large, as, as humans, as people, we don't really like to hurt and upset people. And so breaking bad news to people, for example, for starters, isn't really the most pleasant experience. Uh, although it's something that we have to learn, it's something that we have to do well, and we have to get a little bit more comfortable with, because bad news is bad news. You can't make bad news good news. And so they're bound to be... Um, emotions, they are bound to be reactions from the patient, from the family members in knowing, in, 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 in receiving such news. So we, on one hand, we need to be equipped um, and prepared to try and deal with it. And, and it makes us very uncomfortable. And so we shy away from, from breaking such news sometimes. And as I said earlier, if a family member says, uh, please don't tell my relative. I think we're also worried about the fact that, oh, if we tell, then later they complain whether there are consequences to that as well, to our practice and our workings as a doctor. In theory, we should not readily be getting into situations where we are asked to collude without a patient's awareness because by the principle of confidentiality, we shouldn't be speaking to other people about a patient's health condition. 
In saying that, I do accept in Malaysia, it's usually viewed culturally acceptable where other members of the family have open access and information to information regarding a patient, although whether that is morally and ethically correct is debatable in itself. All right, thank you so much, Doctor, for um, that very clear explanation. So I think just to summarize what you said, it seems that collusion uh, is carried out both with the help of the doctors and the carers, and it usually comes out of love. It's a, something that comes out of good intentions, but it can have some negative consequences for the patient, the family, and also their doctors. Um, pretty much so. I mean, I, I would say as doctors, we, we can't really be black and white in this as well, in that there are certain standards by which we have to practice, but we also have to try and understand the family's point of view. And there are some instances where I would admit I have colluded before uh, to a degree. Um, for example, I, I once saw someone who had dementia and he had cancer and he asked me what was wrong with him and, and the family member said he can't remember anyway if you tell him. Um, I, I tried to explore it a little bit more with the patient. He, he was very insistent he wanted to know. So I told him and he was very upset. But five minutes later, he turned to me and asked me again, what is wrong with me, doctor? So um, in that way, in some instances, I, I think we have to tailor what we do very much to the individual. And the, the people who know the individuals best are the family members who love them and have looked after them and uh, know them far better than we ever do as a doctor. But our role as doctors is really to try and find out more about the patient, find out more about the family, find out more about why they wish to collude and what their concerns are and, and, and validate them because they, they know, I, I would say they, they will definitely know the patient better than we do as doctors. Um, and use that as a starting point to try to figure out what the best approach would be for each individual. I see. So there isn't exactly any black and white answer because just like with many other questions of ethics, I guess uh, there are a lot of grey areas when it comes to collusion. I feel it is important that we individualise care and recognise that every patient's information needs are different. Some people may wish to know everything, Others may not wish to know very much at all and may give that information receiving role to a family member. It's important that we respect their views and that we review this need for information over a period of time because they may want to know more as time passes and they acknowledge their disease in greater detail. It's important that we are open as doctors and we are willing to share and they need to feel that we are open to sharing the information should they wish to require it at a later point of time. That way, at least, we can reduce any distress that may occur if we overwhelm people with information. We can also avoid leaving people in the dark by providing inadequate information as well in accordance to their needs. So it's important that we tailor care to every individual and recognize everyone as being different in their own way. So with this, on behalf of the MMI podcast team and our organization, Malaysian Medics International, we would like to thank Dr. Lam for sharing this wonderful insight on the topic of collusion between carers and doctors and also his own personal experience on this.
Thank you so much. Okay, so Jiat, you haven't shared your experience on death and dying yet. Would you like to share some to us too? Yes, I do have. My dad had cancer a few years back. During that time, we were very confused about what to do. Everything was a mess. Fortunately, his surgery is successful. However, recently, he is diagnosed with metastasis. And because of this, I came across the term advanced care planning. Is there anyone I can ask about this? Yep. Since you have mentioned about advanced care planning, how about inviting one of our speakers for this podcast, Dr. Kaur Hui Min from University of Malaya. So, hi Dr. Kaur. Hello Cheryl. Hi. Uh, could you tell us more about yourself before we go into the advanced care planning first? Oh yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Thanks for the invitation. So, uh, my name is Dr. Kaur. I'm a geriatric specialist which means I look after older people and uh, I'm currently working in University of Malaya. Oh, okay. So, you are still like uh, seeing patients? Uh, yes, yes, yes. So, uh, yeah. So, we see inpatients, we see outpatients. Yeah. Alright. Thank you, Dr. Kaur. So, Dr. Kaur, would you like to tell us more about what is advanced care planning? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, uh, advanced care planning is like the term says, you know, it's like a process of uh, planning for your future medical care specifically. This is what we're talking about. Uh, in advance, really, so that in the event if anyone becomes too unwell to make decisions for themselves, then their wishes and preference, preferences can be made known to the doctor that's looking after them and also to their family members. Yeah. So you see, for example, like you know, certain medical treatment may be unacceptable for some people, and it's also important to know what a person's values, what their preference, what their goals in life is, so to ensure that you know whatever care that is provided is in line with what they really want. Yeah. So that's like the gist of what advanced care planning is, lah. So it's really a conversation about what you would like doing for yourself in the event if life uh, uh, comes to a point that you can't make decisions so that people around you know what you want. Okay, so in this case, right, is advanced care planning like um, implemented in every medical case or illness? Like why, why, why do we need advanced care planning? Is it necessary or anything? Well, I mean, it is a good practice, to be honest. A lot of people don't like to talk about, you know, uh, death and dying. And they don't want to talk about, oh, you know, what if things don't go the way it's planned? Uh, uh, or what, what, do you, what, what, what should we do? So some people don't like to talk about it. But it's actually an important uh, discussion to be made between uh, anyone actually so it allows you to voice out you know what you want doing for your own medical care 
just to ensure that you know you receive care that's consistent with your preference. And most importantly, it helps to reduce stress and burden on your family members or your loved one if it ever comes to a point that they have to make important decisions for you in emergency situation when you do not have the capacity to voice out for yourself. And sometimes they may not even know what you would want doing if this has never been communicated or discussed beforehand. And you can imagine how stressful it can be for family members to go through that, you know, when faced with life and death situation for their loved ones and, you know, having to make that decision at that time. And sometimes, you know, family members may live with that guilt, always wondering if they've made the right choice or not. So it's better that these discussions have to make beforehand so that everyone knows that you know when situations like this come it is less stressful they know that you know this is what you would have wanted and communicated correctly or accurately to the treating uh, doctors at that time so i mean it's it's not just that oh you know i i don't have any illness then i don't have to think about it you know it's never too too early to talk about this you know, any adult who, who has the capacity to think about you know what they want and what they do not want. Hmm. Mm. I hope I can let my dad know about this. But doctor, who can I approach to talk about uh, advanced care planning? And also, like doctor said, how early is actually early? And when can I actually start advanced care planning? It is never too early. La. You know, even like for myself, I mean, I don't have any like chronic illness or life limiting uh, illness at the moment. But you know, I've already told my husband or even my parents, I was like, you know, oh, if this and this happens, you know, this is what I would like. You know, it's never too early to talk about it. And I mean, it's good to talk about it. I mean, you can even start it off, I mean, for ourselves, I mean, to, to the people around you. But you know, if there are patients who have uh, medical conditions goes and sees a doctor for whatever medical health issues they can talk to their clinician whom they trust you know who knows about their medical condition this could be their GP their primary care doctor or if the person has any organ specific uh, uh, medical health condition they can go to that specialist who's probably also able to provide them the information about the disease prognosis and probably outline you know, treatment which allows the patient and the family members to make a more informed decision. And these kind of discussions, you know, it's not just you go to, a, to the appointment, make that decision and you know, it's stamped on your medical records and you can never change it. No, you know, it's like an ongoing discussion. You know, things will change, your medical condition, your, can change and so is your advanced care planning it may also change as you know time goes by as well but whatever it is once uh, you've made that it's also important that you know let's say if you have made the decision on yourself make sure it's communicated to 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 people around you or it's also communicated to your doctors and the doctors usually record it down so that uh, uh, they remember what's being discussed. Oh, okay. So in this case, after the patient 
let's say if the patient they have already communicated with their family and they have made a certain decision for the AP, for the advanced care planning, can they change it after that? Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. You know, um, uh, a patient's medical condition can change. Sometimes at the initial stages of the disease or, 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 or illness or uh, whatever diagnosis that has been made, they may make certain decisions. They may de- decide that, oh, you know, I, I, I still want this and this to happen. But as time changes, let's say if... Uh, the disease condition has deteriorated or they may change their mind about certain things, they can always change it. It's not, you know, written in stone that you, you can't change that. No. And it's important for us to understand that these things can change, yeah. So people are not so stressful thinking that, oh, you know, I don't want to talk about it first because just in case that if I change my mind, you know, uh, 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 I might regret my decision, so it's not 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 really like that. Yeah. I see. So it's a good medical practice, like what doctor said, and it would be good to actually pre-plan ahead every everything or like anything happen. Yes, definitely. Yes. Yeah. How widely is it being practiced in Malaysia? Is it common? <laughs> Uh, I have to say that uh, you know, although we've known about advanced care planning for a long, long time, as difficult it is, you know, for family members to talk about it among themselves, uh, it can also be difficult uh, for doctors to initiate it, especially when they're not used to doing it. So uh, I have to say, it is not exactly as widely practiced as you hope it should be considering, you know, the high uh, uh, prevalence of, you know, multiple chronic illnesses even in Malaysia, you know, but uh, I believe that certain uh, uh, specialty does it a bit more often than the others. So, you know, departments like palliative care medicine, oncology, or even respiratory medicine as they see a lot of patients with uh, chronic uh, obstructive lung disease, or even cardiologists now also do that. So I, I think it really also depends on how comfortable the physician uh, talks about it. Uh, yeah. So I mean, in the hospital setting, what we see is that you know ACP can happen in the outpatient clinic. You know, when the patient comes for their regular review, and it could be initiated uh, by the doctors, especially if they find out that oh, you know, the patients had multiple admissions, multiple exacerbations of the chronic illness. And uh, or they've had a very prolonged stay in hospital, then may then then that actually sometimes kickstarts that discussion. But whenever the doctor wants to make that discussion, you know, one has to ensure that you know adequate time is being allowed for this conversation. And not only that is that you know making sure that the patient also probably have their loved ones or their next of kin with them when they make these discussions. You know, the other instances you see ACP happening in hospital, actually more so is when a patient is being hospitalised, you know, with an acute illness or with a life-threatening illness. You know, when patients are so ill that they require life support intervention, then, you know, that's when doctors uh, proactively (laughs) initiate this conversation. I mean, that's really not 
the best time. But unfortunately, that is a situation that happens a lot, you know. And and, and that's when the stress comes. Family members have to make decision then and then. And uh, with, with with stress, sometimes people can't think rationally as well. So I think. Unfortunately, that's what we see more often than not. You know, ACP being done at a very, very late stage, instead of actually being done much earlier on, where everyone is thinking in a calm mind and they've got time to discuss about it. Yeah, so it's like a reverse of how it should actually happen. Yes. So, in this case, does is there any guideline in Malaysia to aid uh, physician in giving advice on advanced care planning to the patient or it solely depends on physician's experience and knowledge to um, educate patients on advanced care planning? I mean, there. I, I, I don't believe there's any specific uh, guidelines in Malaysia per se, but there are definitely lots of international uh, guidelines of uh, uh, that, that shows you how it could be done and what are the certain uh, discussions that should be made because it's a lot more about just oh, uh, do we put them on a life support machine uh, do we do uh, cardiorespiratory resuscitation actually that's a lot more about it I mean uh, as a person is being diagnosed with a, a life-limiting condition during that process uh, that they go through uh, life there is a lot more to think about you know where they would like to be cared for uh, what kind of thing that they would like to do if they can't do it themselves, you know. You know, there's a lot more to it. Lah. And in the in the actual, uh, like, a guideline, as you could say, there are many different aspects that you can explore with the patient. Yeah. So, Doctor, as a family member, right, do I actually actively participate with, the, uh, with my family? Uh, my very dad, like for example, my dad actually has cancer. So do I actively participate in this advanced care planning with him? Or just let him decide what he wants and then I just follow? I think in many instances, the, the, the individual will want to voice out what they would like and they wouldn't like. But these are very difficult decisions to make as well for themselves. Definitely having someone there to support them, to also uh, uh, to give them the assurance that what they would like is going to be heard is important. But sometimes some people also may not be so clear in what uh, uh, they want or they don't want or be so clear in what it really means, you know, when they're being asked about certain things. So having yourself, you know, having a, 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 a next of kin to help them go through this process is very important. You know, I mean, it, it really depends on case-to-case basis. Some people may be unable to make decisions. They may think like, oh, I don't know, why don't you decide for me? There may be some people who are very clear on what they want and they don't want and they will just tell you what it is. So yeah, it really depends on person-to-person basis. But it's important to ask them if you need to talk about this, are you happy that you know I be there to listen on, to help you in this process? I think they all would appreciate that support. 
then I would believe that uh, I think that the ACP care in this case would varies between disease, right? Meaning that um, different ACP advice for patient with different disease because as doctor has also mentioned that the ACE, the advanced care plan, planning really depends on the patient and how they communicate with their family members as well as how the physician themselves would advise and educate the patient. Mm, yeah. I mean, uh, the ACP as a whole, the concept will still be the same. You know, it's looking about what a, a, a person's medical preferences is, you know, what do they think that, you know, is acceptable treatment and not acceptable treatment, what's the ceiling of what they would like certain things to be. But the disease trajectory is different, you know, from one condition to another. So, for example, people who live with uh, terminal illness like cancer may be functioning fairly high throughout the illness and then they may rapidly decline. Whereas someone who has chronic illness or organ failure, let's say, may have multiple exacerbation of their illness and gradually deteriorate over time. So yes, the disease is different, and you may expect different present. I mean, different progression of the disease as a person goes through it. But the ACP discussion may is is the concept would still be similar. Yeah. But I mean, for doctors to understand that, you know, that because the trajectory is different, when to initiate the discussion would also vary. So you don't want to say, oh, okay, but you know, he or she is still looking okay. Maybe I'll just wait. But like I say, if someone suffers from cancer, they may suddenly deteriorate very rapidly. So when you get the right time, it may be too late. So hence, you know, it's better uh, uh, to do to do it earlier on, you know, especially when a person still is fairly clear in their mind to decide what they want and what they don't want. Yes, I agree with doctor that to plan it before because sometimes one condition may deteriorate very fast and they might not have that time to really plan accordingly. Yes, 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 definitely. So it's, it's great, it's always good to pre-plan Alright, then um, doctor, I think that will be all for today. Do you have any take-home messages for our audience? <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it's to remember uh, ACP is basically holistic good medical uh, practice and it's, it's, it's good for us to allow uh, uh, this communication to happen. You know, it's never uh, too early to talk about it and uh, the kind of discussion would go uh, differently for different uh, people and uh, most importantly is even if you've thought about it make sure that you communicated it to someone because you know people can't read your mind isn't it yeah so uh, yeah, that's that's really what I want to tell thank you doctor for all your advice on advanced care planning no problem uh, I will certainly take my time to actually explain what is advanced care planning and actually discuss this with my dad so that he will know that this is a very important thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these discussions, like I say, like, you know, it's not a one-time discussion. You know, there's so many different things that you know you may think about. So this is a process. Like, yeah. But it's good to start the process. Thank you, Doctor. So with this, 
on behalf of the MMI podcast team and our organization, Malaysian Medics International, we would like to take this opportunity to thank Dr. Ko for sharing wonderful insights on advanced care planning. My pleasure. Thank you very much for your invitation. Yes, thank you, Dr. Kaur. And thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to rate and follow our podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions, comments or feedback, feel free to give us a shout out on Facebook page at Malaysian Medics International. Till then, stay tuned for next episode. And we hope to see you again.